The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go All to the moon. Talking Space for December 19th, 2010. This is show number 243. I'm your host for this week, Gene McCalka. As the White House has instructed NASA to go ahead and turn its back on human exploration of our nearest neighbor in space, the moon, another ambitious group of professionals from science, engineering, logistics, and other disciplines are saying, well, heck no, we want to go. Just before the STS-133 launch attempt, Mark Ratterman, Sawyer Rosenstein, and myself had a grand opportunity to talk to two of the architects of this ambitious project called Open Luna, Mr. Paul Graham and Ms. Debbie Lee Wilkerson. We talked a little bit about what Open Luna is, what it's setting out to do, and more importantly, how others who really wish to make a contribution to the effort can get involved. First, just a little bit about our guests. Uh, Mr. Paul Graham, who is the chairman and... CEO of Open Luna. Uh, Paul attended school in the, at the Colorado School of Mines where he studied, studied engineering, physics, computer science, and electrical engineering as a triple major. He has worked just about every building trade job there is, including several years as a plumber and an electrician. Currently, he is the CTO of Alpine Systems Engineering, a Unix Linux PC consulting and web hosting company where he enjoys teaching people on how to use their computers in fun and creative ways. Uh, Paul's other interests include writing. He's currently writing a novel and a movie script and a children's story, having published several short stories in a non- and a nonfiction magazine article. Uh, he enjoys photography, videography, theater, acting, mountaineering, hiking, and other outdoor activities, scuba diving, and he is currently a amateur radio operator. His... Uh, Ham uh, uh, ID is CK0IFZ. Ms. Deborah Lee Wilkerson is the Vice President of Membership and Development of Open Luna and also is a board member. Her resume spans from degrees in physics to leading the charge on fundraising committees. The short list of her skills includes writer, tutor, computer geek, and all-around rocket scientist. She has co-founded and helped launch several space working groups. She enjoys craft projects, which is art made from disparate pieces of material. Along those same lines, her vision for Open Luna membership is merging people from all walks of life for a collage approach to colonizing space, starting with our nearest neighbor, the moon. She's actively forming membership and development teams, and if you are so inclined, you may email her your resume for consideration on one of her teams. The only minimal qualification she asks is ample courage. Now, it should be noted that this interview was conducted just a few days after Richard Speck, a very close friend and collaborator on the Open Luna team, 
had passed away. We thank both Mr. Graham and Ms. Wilkerson for coming on with us under such trying circumstances and dedicate this episode to Richard Speck's memory. Well, please welcome on board Talking Space, Mr. Paul Graham and Ms. Debbie Lee Wilkerson. First, could you explain to the audience what exactly the Open Luna Project is and, and what, uh, what it's hoping to accomplish, please? Wow. Okay. My elevator's pitch is we are a privately funded open source return mankind to the moon mission where our stated end goal is to build an outpost on the lunar surface in the next five or seven years using, again, open source build techniques and private funding. What what was your inspiration to get involved in all of this? Was it just the next stop, next logical step for you, or you know, is space kind of sort of in your blood, or or you know, essentially, what was the catalyst that got you started in all this? For me, I know Debbie Lee has a different answer, but for me, space has always been in my blood. You know, my father taught me well. Um, you know, he's always just taught me to keep on exploring, keep on striving, keep on learning something new, and I had been working with another space organization, uh, the Mars Society, for a very long time, for eight or nine years, where I was their chief engineer, and I created and then was the chief of the engineering team, and I was the guy who was basically responsible for maintaining the two outposts or the two facilities that they've built. Now, I will not take responsibility for those facilities, nor do I take any responsibility at all for how they are right now. A huge amount of damage has been done to them since I left. But during that time, I'm looking at these these people working on these, and I'm seeing this huge passion and a tremendous amount of skill and a tremendous amount of resources that were going into analog missions. Now, I love analog missions. I definitely think it's where we need to go continuing forward in space. But I looked at some of the work that was being done, and I thought, you know, if we'd only worked with space-qualified materials, this device or this thing, whichever was being built, would work for real. Why aren't we doing this? And that kind of stewed in my head for a year. I got to thinking, okay, what is a goal that we could really do? And I talked with another, one of the original founding members, uh, Dr. Gary Snyder, and he and I started running some numbers. And then we met up with uh, Richard Speck from Microspace, and we all three started running numbers. And we realized that doing this featherweight could be done. And we started thinking alpine exploration, not when a big go to the moon. And that's why we started getting very, very light and very just as low as you can possibly get on the bar. And we started realizing this was a project that was doable at a human-reachable budget in a human-reachable time. And that was kind of the birth of Open Luna. And Debbie Lee and I had been working together for some time on all different sorts of projects, on three or four different projects that I can think of. And I know she has her own story about what brought her into it as well. Debbie, can you relate that story to us, or...? Well, sure. Um, all right. So I met Paul Graham at the uh, Mars Habitat, as you might imagine, where he was doing the engineering work. And I was um, doing the engineering work on the telescope. It was a summer um, engineering program, along with an astronomer, Peter Detterline. And um, I kind of stayed in touch with him. Uh, that was about summer of 2006. It's kind of touch base with him now and then 
through the time, and then a couple of years ago he started talking about um, the, the Open Luna Foundation, and I didn't see exactly where I was going to fit in, but when uh, last uh, well, a year ago, uh, June, he called a members meeting and invited me into it, and we were talking on it, and and um, uh, I came in as a board member and one of the um, uh, executive officers. And I've always been interested in, um, uh, well, not always, but since junior high, interested in um, astronomy and space. And one night sitting with my telescope looking out, through the telescope looking at the stars, I just uh, stepped back and for a moment decided I wanted to go as far into space as I could. And if that was looking through a telescope, then let's see if I could go farther. And the moon has always delighted me. People talk about um, terraforming and moon itself. It's like, if you don't like it how it is, you know, don't go there. It's it's beautiful the way it is and um, hoping to set foot on it. Um, as far as going to Mars, that's, um, you know, far enough down the road that, uh, you know, I may be too old to do it, but the moon, I won't be. Um, could you... Could one of you go through the the, the Open Luna profile, um, you know, the mission profile? I was looking at it on on your website, and uh, I was just kind of curious as far as, you know, the first you know the first phase one, phase two. If you can go into that a little, little bit, uh, a little bit with us. We basically do this using four mission classes: uh, two robotic classes and two manned classes, or I should say, crewed classes, because we don't know who actually is going to be on the on the suits um, and the, the first one we call a scout class that's that's basically a a hopper and actually let me take a step back before i get into the mission profile it's it's easier if i describe a couple of things about how open luna works kind of sure please go ahead so we're a big fan of building one thing and building 28 of them rather than build one make a trivial revision, build another, make a trivial revision like NASA and other space agencies are prone to. We like to be the mission of good enough. If it's good enough, it's good enough. I don't need 99.998% efficient when 99.2 will work or even 95 will work. So for our lander, for example, we're building one model stock lander that will serve every one of our mission classes. It may not be 100% efficient for every one of the mission classes, but I can build 28 of them. And that makes them very cheap. That makes them extraordinarily reliable by the time we get to the manned, the crewed classes, because then we know that that lander has done what it needs to do several times. It's been tested under fire. So that's kind of a, that's kind of an important thing in the way we think. Our scout class, for example, will use that same stock lander and the same stock launch vehicle to get it to the moon, and then it will land on one of what is currently eight pre-selected landing spots, kick off a little rover, hop to the next spot, kick off a little rover, and basically expend most of its fuel hopping around, kicking off rovers as it goes. Uh, we're currently looking at uh, the Shackleton Crater region. Uh, of course, you know, that's the great thing about open source is we're always open for a new idea and a new change, and that's just kind of where it looks like all the fun is going to be for now. So we'll hop around Shackleton Crater, dropping off these little rovers as we go. The last thing it'll do is go up to Malpart Mountain, 
and become a radio relay. That way the little guys don't have to go all the way back home. They just have to go to Malpart Mountain, which is, as some of your listeners may know, a spot that sees the Earth pretty much continuously, and it happens to be in view of our entire operating theater. So, and I think it has a pretty large time of sunlight exposure as well. So that's that's our first mission class. We call it scout class. And that's where you go looking around to find out, okay, what's interesting? Where do we want to go next? I mean, the whole thing is interesting. Every, every part of the moon is interesting. But there are some spots that are going to be more interesting than others. Our science team will look at that data, decide which one of these spots is the most important. And they may say, we need one or two or three or four samples from these sites. This is where we want you to go next. And then it will... We'll send a second mission, our boomerang class, as we call it now, boomerang class mission to use that same lander, bringing 225 kilos worth of sample return rover and sample return container down. It'll land. It'll scoop up as much sample material as it can, you know, bagging it individually, of course, and sealing it up properly, and then return 225 kilos of sample return container and samples. The From that... From those samples, they'll be brought uh, right now. University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, is has been selected to curate those samples. The science team will look through them and decide which areas are the most interesting. From there, they pick a landing site, and that's where we send our Pathfinder class mission. First, uh, the second first man on the moon, and I use man euphemistically. It could well be a woman, because it will be. You know, this is all about the mission of light enough as well. Right. And you know, the, the second first person on the moon, because at this point it might as well be the first person all over again, because it's all new technology, all new everything, a whole new operating theater. We might as well be starting from scratch. And they uh, they will land. And they will spend as much time on the surface as they can, considering consumables, uh, personal discomfort, all sorts of human factors. They will stay as long as they can. And they will, during their time on the surface, be testing build techniques, uh, construction materials, seeing what sorts of things work and don't work, and making sure that the plan we have built to construct the outpost will actually work. If they're able to test everything and all the procedures work, then we go straight to the Explorer class mission, which is two more people and a bunch of consumables and the outpost. And they go and they build the outpost. If something doesn't work, if the techniques are flawed in some fundamental way and can't be repaired, then he comes home and we build a new plan and we do it again. But our expectation is that it will work. We will know enough about the environment to develop the right techniques and have materials that will do what we need them to do. And then we send two more people in all of our materials, and they build an outpost. And that's the core of the mission. We build the outpost. The next stage of the mission is then we send some of the people back. We collect uh, five more people and return them to the moon. They stay in the outpost for as long as possible, testing every system, trying as hard as they can to break things. And if they can't break everything, then we declare it open for business. And that is the end of the project. 
So I guess the end game would be here to go ahead and establish a, an outpost over there that say, you know, uh, NASA or JAXA or, or anybody else, if they wanted to send somebody over there, um, could stay there for, you know, however time they wanted to, uh, to stay there, conduct their research and come back home. And basically they would go ahead and essentially pay, you know, would it be, you know, sort of they would pay you guys to go ahead and use, use the outpost or, or right. how, how would that work? Well, we intend to operate the outpost rather like uh, Canada operates the Polar Shelf, Continental Polar Shelf Project, or uh, Raytheon runs Antarctic Operations, which is, you know, we are just the logistics supply house. If you okay. need a suit, we provide a suit. If you, if you have your own transportation and you just want to borrow our hut, then fine. Then you can come and borrow our hut. And then we just provide whatever logistics you need to do your science, to do your exploration. Um, we will you know, charge basically on a basic cost plus basis. You know, we're, we're not doing this to be making money, at least not the outpost. We won't be doing that to make money. Now, we will provide operations. If somebody says, hey, I want to explore this area. I don't have anyone that's capable of doing it. You've got somebody on the surface now. Will you do it for us? Well, yes, we will do it for a fee. But if you just want to say, hey, I, I want to buy a suit. I want transport. I want to go stay in the outpost for six weeks and do this work and then come home, it will cost you X and X will be however long it'll cost us to maintain you there, to get your flight there, the cost of the suit, plus a small extra amount that will be used to further upgrade the facility. We intend to start adding greenhouses almost immediately. We intend to build a second facility on the far side, you know, the just purely for the astronomy guys. Uh, we intend to build a third facility on some other interesting spot, perhaps in a lava tube, someplace equatorial. We don't know yet. That'll be determined later. And, and that's where this extra money will go to. Yeah, I, I, when I was reading your website, I kind of thought that the, you'd, be, you'd be using like some, someplace like McMurdo as a, as a, as a model for, uh, for doing all, the, all this. Um, where exactly is the hardware right now for, the, for, the, for each one of these flights? How, where, how far along are you as far as you know, developing the hardware at this point? We have a lander that has flown. It has burn fuel. It has made lift. It's not as efficient as we'd like, and we're still detailing it, but we've got tankage that is extraordinarily efficient. You know, as far as the mass that the tank can carry you know, is a ratio over the mass of the tank. We've got tankage that is extraordinarily efficient, but we, we're working on the engines a little bit more, uh, and we're working on GN, the guidance navigation controller, the GNC of it. We have some loose ideas of what we want to do for a primary launch vehicle. We have a backup in that, as it happens, the launch vehicle we want to build matches the profile of a Falcon 9. So if we don't get to build our own, we can launch on a Falcon 9. We don't need a heavy, just a Falcon 9. A single Falcon 9 launch will get us two of our landers to the moon, and our landers will be capable of bringing their 225 kilos home. The suit is in a kind of a loose, we know what we want to do with it and we're working the details on it. We've contracted with a group in Great Britain called NARCT at 90. They are a premier scuba rebreather component manufacturer and they've agreed to build our suit rebreathers. Um, we've got Paul Webb's group, Elastic Garments, who's who you may know has agreed to uh, 
or he's the guy who's developed the elastic mechanical counterpressure suit. He's agreed to do our textiles for the suit for us. And that's kind of where we're at on hardware. I mean, we've, we, we have a bunch of, we're looking at a bunch of off the shelf components that we can kind of all put together. The big issue, and this is the only question that really matters is how are we going to pay for it? And that's, that's the question that's so big. Not even NASA knows the answer to that question yet. I mean, yeah, that that was that was actually one of one of my follow-up questions with re- reference to this. Where, you know, uh, as far as the funding streams are coming for all of this, where, you know, are, are they coming from, you know, just 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 donations? Are they coming from, uh, you know, private you know private folks just saying, okay, here you go, we believe in what you're doing, or, or exactly where is the funding stream coming from at this point? Well, right now it's all donations. Okay. Where we're looking to go with it is we're looking for cor- corporate sponsorship. We're looking for we're looking at a donation model. I mean, we are a 501c3 in the states. We're developing our our charitable organization status in Canada, and that's where we're looking to go with it. At the same time, there will be some some money making opportunities. You know, if we do develop our own launch vehicle, we will be providing launch services. Uh, we've got a couple of customers who've indicated that they will buy our launch services if we provide them. We, we are looking at developing a stock microsat launch vehicle based on our lander technology, You're using the smaller engines and the smaller tankage, but arranged in the same method as a heavy launch vehicle. Okay. That gives us you know, little 1U launches at a price that uh, almost any university could afford. Okay. And you know, when you in when you think about the grand scheme of things, you know, we're looking at a $500-$700 million budget. For you and I, that's an impossible amount of money. In the big picture, that's hardly no- noticeable. I mean, you think about how much money does your average America's Cup team spend to compete, forget win. Yeah. You know, how much does your average NASCAR team spend? You know, I'm told the number is $50 million a year. Yeah, something that's exactly right, actually. <laughs> You know, when also when you look at uh, you know the Apollo missions and so on, and and what the budgets were just to get back to the moon, or if you even look at the Constellation program, um, and what what the proposed budgets were to get back there, um, you know the, the, that that's a bar. You know, in, in space flight, it's a collective bargain. Right. Um, we're doing it because we're taking some different looks at how hardware works. You know, you heard me say suit several times. We're not sending right. a capsule. We've got one person who's going to go in a lander in a suit. That's it. No capsule. They return in an inflatable heat shield. Just ride the surfboard down. Wow. Um, and there's a lot of studies on that. See, this is the thing that, that kind of surprises me that no one else is doing this yet. There's been a lot of studies on like, – Georgia Tech has a lot of work on balloons for reentry systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, ESA and the, and the Soviets were looking at – I guess it's – I don't know who they are now. Anyway, ESA and, and the, the so, former Soviet republics are, have been doing a bunch of work in inflatable heat shields. NASA has now said they want to work on inflatable heat shields. It's a technology that is known good. It hasn't been developed real heavily, and it works best with light cargoes. Well, 225 kilos is pretty light. You know, we're not talking tons. We're talking about 225 kilos. And it's that level of, of thing that allows us to pull our mission off so cheaply. This is uh, new to me, so I have to kind of uh, try and translate the terms. Like in particular, when I hear open source, 
I tend to think of uh, computers and such as that. Mm-hmm. But could you contrast open source as as the way that that you see it versus, I guess, what would be the contrast, government-type programs? Well, I mean, first off, I come from IT. So when I think of open source, I think of things like Linux, and I think of things like Apache and other software projects. But there's also open source hardware, like OpenMoco. It's a cell phone project. It's all open. There's a, a video card that's being developed in the same way. For us, what open source means is everything we developed is available to the world. And yeah, I know the ITAR question is going to come next, but everything we develop is available to the world and we expect the world to come and help develop it. You know, we have a, we mentioned that we needed a horizon, you know, we need some way of, of GNC. And a student in Oakland University in, in uh, Oakland County, Michigan, said, hey, I've got this optical horizon finding system that I'm developing for my master's project. You guys can license that technology. Basically, we can have it for free. That's a, a, a man, a, a, an example of the community stepping up and helping. We've got people who are coming in and looking at parts of the project. Uh, we had a guy in Colorado who was looking at the outpost itself, and he was working on a system of reinforcing spray foam so that it has some tensile strength. And he had agreed to license that spray foam to us. Now, he's keeping that as a, as a technology to him, but he's allowing us to use it. Um, the guy who developed our lander, that was Richard Speck from Microspace, he developed, he did a lot of the initial development on it. Now we're carrying on with the GNC and the, and the engines. He had originally agreed to, and, and that's kind of an issue now because Richard Speck is the gentleman who just recently passed away. He had originally agreed to give us the hardware for free or, you know, at cost of materials. And anyone who came to him and said, hey, we're building an open source mission, an open Luna mission, he would give them the material for cost as well. He just wanted to keep ownership of it because he didn't want somebody else making his tanks. And he had had agreed to give us the technology should he agreed to or should he step out of the game for whatever reason. And we're still trying to figure out what's going on with that because this was a verbal agreement and I don't know what's going on with the family now. But we... You know, that's an example of technology that's coming to us that we didn't personally develop. All the code we write will get published on a SourceForge page. Everything that we do as far as our development work ends up on the wiki so that everyone can come and see it. I'm kind of doing a lot of the work for developing the suit. Everything I develop will end up on the wiki. So anyone who wants to can go and look at it and say, oh, I can do that. And they could download the plans and download the code and build themselves a suit. Or they can come to us and say, I don't want to build one since you've already got the molds. Can you make one for me? Sure, it'll cost you this. That'll be one of the money-making ventures. So we will sell assembled hardware at a profit. That's kind of what open source means to me. Yeah, and so then, too, you know, the, the follow-on of that is that so then this outpost that has been built in an open-source fashion is then available. You know, the first crews we selected, but eventually it's open to everybody to come and use. They need, you know, a, a method of uh, transportation to get there, and um, 
there's a certain amount of um, of the operating expenses that have to be paid, but through the sponsorship and the entertainment revenue and the memberships and the donations, um, the whole thing will be paid for already. And we're not trying to have to pay back um, investors or a loan or anything like that um, off the money. So it's just operating costs at that point. But it's, it's that's that's the back end. That's the the end result of, of your open source as well. That's part of our it's it's your moon your mission get involved thing. That's a tagline that our the head of our science team came up with. And we we do think this is everyone's moon. This is everyone's mission. Everyone can be involved. The other half of open source is all of our data. Every all the data that comes back, we will publish the frequencies that we operate on. There will be one encrypted control channel, but everything else will come back in the clear. So all the data will be available to the world as we see it. For those of you who can't kick out the big antennas, we'll have servers that will be relaying the data right as it comes in, unmolested by anybody. Seems like the science community would have to love that, having access to data without restrictions. That's, that's the point. It's the world's moon. This is the world's mission. It's the world's data. Information needs to be free. We will, of course, be looking for sponsors to pay for the servers and pay for the bandwidth and pay for these sorts of things. And we will also make deals with some scientists if they will say, hey, we've got this project, but we want first right of publication. That's fine. And as soon as they publish, all the data needs to be published, though. You know, if they develop the data, if they use some of our hardware and they do their own data assembly, fine. But all of our data comes off free as it happens. You know, I understand how first right of publication is a big deal. And the other thing that openness means to us is not just open source and open data. There's also openness in the organization. Every penny that comes in is accounted for openly. Every penny I spend is accounted for openly. You don't have to worry about your donations getting lost in some mystical fund somewhere and 80% of it being chewed up by the fundraiser. If 80% of it is chewed up by the fundraiser, we will announce that. That will be publicized, or that will be published, I should say. But it'll be, you can come and look and you will see because right. it will be right there. Right. And if there's some piece of data there that, that you want that isn't there, let us know. It will become available to you. We're not trying to hide anything. This will be open and available to anyone who asks. And like Paul said, um, not only is it open to everyone, and we need, um, and so that anyone can come in and participate and be involved, we actually need everyone to come in and participate to be involved. And even though 500 and 700 million dollars is, you know, it's certainly a lot to each of us. Um, it's not a lot. I was just talking to somebody um, today. They were trying to resurrect um, trans. Uh, um, Arctic uh, shipping lanes idea, and they were talking, you know, in the you know billions of dollars it costs. It costs that you know half a billion dollars to buy an icebreaker, or you know, a, or a shipping vessel. So, on the corporate scale, these numbers are, are nothing. Now, now you take the, I mean, you know, 500 million people giving a dollar <laughs> solves it. 
50 million with $10 and, and so on. We actually need the wide participation. We also need that for the advertising and for the sponsorship. It just boils down the numbers. If everyone who saw Avatar gave us 10 bucks, it's, it's, it's over. It's done. We made it. Yeah, and, and so and uh, that was kind of why I was asking about your listenership. You said you're getting uh, someone on the order of 20,000 downloads um, per episode. Right, that's correct. Yeah, so if everybody who listened to this episode gave us five dollars, we'd have a hundred thousand dollars, and that is actually uh, what we need right now. We're not, um, you know, our, we're launching the organization right now. We um, did our uh, as a formal corporation. We're a year and a half old. And we're still trying to get, so we're trying to get the organization going. And from that, we can build that into um, quite a bit more money, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we're bootstrapping um, on that as well. And that's a, that gives us a huge strap to pull. NASA just released the, uh, the LRO, some additional data from LRO and LCROSS this, this mm-hmm. past week. Um, showing that the moon is a far more, you know, wetter and has a, has a heck of a lot more resources on there than we possibly imagined. Um, have you been, you know, obviously you're, you're going to be looking at that, that particular, you know, the data, and is that going to be helping you guys at all with reference to what you folks are doing? It helps us in that. It gives us some good operational data. We know, for example, that we don't have to be sending water to the moon forever. We can we can extract our own. That means we also don't need to be sending fuel to the moon forever. We, we can learn how to extract our own. The material is there. We know that ISRU, or in-situ resource utilization, is is something that's available to us. And we just need to send the hardware to make it happen. That will make further operations go much easier, much more cheaply. All we need to do is get it started. Uh, Debbie Lee, just out of curious, what, what is exactly your role in, in, in the organization? I didn't quite, I wanted to ask you that earlier. I didn't have a quite, quite a chance to do that. Uh, Vice President of Membership and Development, I proposed um, that instead of just having a president and vice president, and the vice president backs up the president when he can't be there, uh, that did happen this week. Uh, last month, and um, and I did have to, to do that. But um, we actually have, uh, we're making, we have two vice presidents, uh, Gary Snyder that Paul referenced earlier as one of the people who um, um, helped envision and did the um, the planning for the, these missions. He's our vice president of research and development. And so we're setting up the vice president roles to actually um, do real work and have uh, particular tasks actually take what otherwise the president would do. Because um, I, I see so often in these company or in kind of company organization club, the president is doing um, rallying people. They're doing the promotion work. They're having to lead everything and there's just a lot of stuff that falls onto one person and Do podcast interviews yeah. <laughs> um so we're trying to spread that out over uh people with the vice president position so um i've taken a, a lead on the membership program yeah. i'm coordinating that and getting 
in software, and then uh, development is coming up with ideas for fundraising. Okay. Um, speaking of ideas for fundraising and ideas for, for projects and other projects you folks might be involved in currently, what other projects are going on right now that you folks might want to talk about? First off, I'll say that we, you know, that there's, there's two organizations. There's the Open Luna Foundation, which is the nonprofit, the funding arm, and then there's the Open Luna Project. Now, the Open Luna Project is not the only place that the Open Luna Foundation sends funds. We, we have sponsored a couple of other groups and a couple of other organizations who are basically doing some of our work for us. If they are directly involved in returning humankind to the moon, we will help fund that, or, that group and that organization. We have done some of that already. I, for the life of me, can't remember <laughs> what groups other than we've helped SEDS Canada with a project they were working on and some group that was collecting funds together that ended up going to Copenhagen suborbitals. But as far as our own projects, we're also working with uh, the Moon Society on a couple of contests. We're working on working with the Moon, um, Moon Society and SEDS India on a microsat contest. What else we got going on, Debbie Lee? I was going to get back to the uh, sponsor of the day program yep. and um, need to contact our programmers for that. There was a, a sponsor of the day program that uh, I was setting up with some um, programmers, and that has kind of, uh, uh, kind of went to the back burner there for a while, so it's bringing that forward this um, this month and need to take the next steps on that. But it was a, it was a program where people could can come in and sponsor Open Luna for that day, be the daily sponsor, and we'd have um, kind of an electronic burst that would go out and say, uh, you know, Twitter, tweet accounts and uh, all these other postings and LinkedIn and what have you would announce who it was. So it would be like a little advertising scheme that would come out daily. And, That's kind of neat. Yeah, that's a pretty cool program. I was just wondering what other outreach, you know, projects you folks have have got in mind if you're if you're going out to like uh, to schools or something like that to try to get uh, maybe some uh, some students involved also in uh, in perhaps helping out with the with the rovers or anything like that. Well, funny you would ask. Just <laughs> yesterday, I came back from the University of Toronto, where they had some. They had some interest in their space development contest, and I was a judge for that last contest, and they asked me to uh, come out and talk about it with the new students this this term to see what it takes to get them into their space development contest. Um, we, we will speak with different groups as they like, and we will help teach them that there are cool things. And, and, and this, by the way, is the real reason for the mission. I mean, we talk about going to the moon. We talk about building the outpost. We talk about all of these other very cool things. But in my mind, the real reason for this mission is to teach students, and I mean kindergarten to postdoc, that there is something cool in science and engineering other than building cell phones that are obsolete before you get them. And TVs that people are going to throw out in a year are cars that nobody really wants. 
and there's cool things in science other than researching baldness cures or global warming. That's kind of why we do this is to just to help them understand that there's neat things. You want to learn science. You want to learn math, not because the teacher says you need to to pass the test, but you want to learn math. You want to learn calculus because that's what you have to do to make that rocket work. And that rocket is cool. Right, exactly. And that's, um, you know, uh, again, I think that's that's the end game here. You know, do you want to go ahead and, you know, why we have to be number one in math and science? Well, here's the reason why. We're actually working on trying to uh, uh, get the, uh, the – the, the human species off of off world and and uh, hopefully uh, get all of our eggs out of one basket, so to speak, and well, lead to future you know lead to the future habitability of, of or the future secureness really of the human race. I call it the ultimate offsite backup. Um, so so let me, let me to finish answering the question. Sure, please. So what we're doing is. Is first off, we meet with student groups. Anytime they want, we'll we'll try and find somebody to come and speak with them. That's usually a chapter level thing. Um, although you know, I think Debbie Lee and I and one other person have done most of the speaking at this point. Uh, we we we're trying to build a website right now that provides education from a space based point of view, and I mean education from kindergarten to postdoc. So. Our, my goal, my end goal, something I'm I'm wanting to see happen, and I don't ex- I expect it won't be finished until after we're done with the mission, but we'll still keep trying, is that some kid in Zimbabwe, as long as he has a net connect, can go to our website, and then when he walks away, he has the equivalent education of, a, say, a, a graduate in uh, in aerospace engineering. And he, he can learn everything he needs to know either through our website or our website pointing them to other resources. You know, like MIT has that fantastic resource, and there's all kinds of good resources uh, for how to learn these things. But if you don't know, if you're a, a kid and you just say, I want to learn about space, and you don't know, we can be the jumping-off point. If you're a teacher and you're going, well, it's Space Week this week, and I'm an English teacher, and I got no clue. Now what? The teachers can come to our website and they can they will find projects there. I mean, now this is I have to say this is a resource we're developing. We don't have it. Please, teachers, please don't come there now. If you want to help us develop this, yes, then please come here and tell us. We want to be able to provide this resource so the teacher can come and say, oh look, here's a nifty project. I can get the students doing this. The uh, physics. You know, the high school physics teacher can say, you know, how am I teaching my kids trig-based physics because they haven't had calculus yet? Trust me, it happens. That's how I first learned physics was trig-based. And how am I going to do this? He can come to the website. He can find some cool rocketry examples or different space-based examples of how to teach this at a level that they can that they can understand. That's part of what we intend to do as far as our outreach. Yeah, it, se- it, it seems, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away. I kind of wish I had this kind of resource when I was growing up. Might have Things might have turned out a little differently. That's um, why I want it, because I didn't have this resource either. I mean, the, the really good stuff. Uh, I, I have a couple of other questions left, but I'll open it up to the floor if anybody else has anything. I've got, Go ahead, a, com- I've got a comment. 
just you know generally the whole idea of continuity of building blocks that you're starting with small steps and going on from there and, and keeping some hardware uh, concepts the hardware that you'd use for the the different phases common to me that seems incredibly smart <laughs> and uh, I, how did you come up with that uh, that kind of thinking I it- I don't, uh, you know, people, you're, you're not the first person to ask me that, and I have no clue. It just seemed intuitively obvious to me. It just seemed like the only way to do it. I don't know why. What makes space expensive is because everything we've done now, which um, at the New Space Conference, um, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, um, he said, he proposed instead of old space, because that was the New Space Conference, instead of calling it old space, heritage space. But the heritage space philosophy was very mission-oriented. We're going to the moon. We're building the hardware. We need to go to the moon or to Mars or wherever doing this. And you're very focused, and you build what you need for that. And, um, you know, if you find it off the shelf, fine. But usually it's hard to tell if anybody even looked. Well, for years, there wasn't any thing on the shelf to, to buy. And so everything was very directed to completing the goal and doing what you needed. And new space is more about building infrastructure, building methods where anybody can go anywhere and you can grab parts and pieces and pull missions together quickly. That's the whole idea. And um, in order to do that, you need modularized components. You need pieces that... Um, are easy to construct and available. I'll speak the same language together. You know, yes. To, to take that, to take that philosophy. I mean, that, that microsat launch vehicle I was talking about. The intention is we would take off-the-shelf lander engines, off-the-shelf lander tankage, assemble them in the the same style, which will look a lot like OTRAG assemble them in the same style as the heavy launch vehicle, use the heavy launch vehicle's GNC, and there's your launch vehicle, made in, a brand-new launch vehicle made entirely out of existing components. We have a similar sort of plan for using surface operate, you know, surface hopping around, using lander tanks and lander engines and throttle valves to build something that will look a lot like the old Space 199 Eagles using lander GNC, you know, the hopper GNC from the Scout class. It's just little modules that all talk the same language. And then you end up with this infrastructure like Debbie Lee was talking about. And that's another question. Go ahead. I'm sorry, General. And that's you know a big chunk of what we're trying to do here. You know, we talk about building the outpost, but what we're really building is infrastructure. You know, every launch we intend to put a communication satellite in orbit around the moon, building communications infrastructure. Every time we we develop these new technologies, it's all thinking of in terms of well, most we're developing very little technologies. Mostly we're assembling existing technologies, but it's it's thinking in terms of building infrastructure. How do we how do we take something that we can turn into a modular block to use again and again and again and again? Next, next question. I don't know if I've missed it because I'm I'm kind of trying to to get a picture in my mind of everything you're describing, and it's a pretty big picture. 
is there is there anything that's Earth orbit that's that's one of your assets or plans for the future, or are you, are you pretty much work from uh, ground launch to the moon and base on the moon and and return to Earth? Is it pretty much a a straight round trip uh, between the two, or do you have anything in Earth orbit? Uh, we're Earth to Earth surface to lunar surface for up till version three, if I remember the roadmap right. Um, I think by version three, we start talking about um, Earth lunar cyclers, but that's something we'd have to get uh, Dr. Snyder on for. He was the one who'd written up that roadmap, and I haven't seen it in a little while. But I know at some point we start talking about, you know, basically the idea that, that Robert Heinlein wrote about many, many years ago, space jockey. You know, we have a a launch Earth surface to Earth orbit in a vehicle that is specifically tuned for that. And then Earth surface to Mars surface, just TLI across on a vehicle that is specifically tuned for that. And then land in a vehicle that's specifically tuned for that. You know, and that whole assembly would probably, by that point, would be fueled from the moon. You know, the, the TLI and then back and the lunar landing and back that would all be fueled from the moon. That's, but that's like version three or four. That's down the ways a while. But other than that, no, we've got nothing planned for Earth orbit, um, just, just lunar orbit. We intend to put the communication satellites in lunar orbit and possibly in a couple of the L points, which is one of the contests, by the way. I actually have a question relating to that. Um, how exactly do you see yourselves compared to, uh, you know, other programs that are attempting to go back to the moon, such as, uh, you know, like the Google Lunar X Prize or uh, other privatized companies like that? Well, we don't see ourselves as competition because none of them are trying to do what we're trying to do. We actually work with two XPRIZE teams. And uh, two XPRIZE teams have kind of open they, – they've said they will use our technology, and we're using some of their technology. So we don't consider ourselves competition with them. We don't know of any group right now that is specifically trying to build a lunar outpost. So check me if I'm wrong on that. We see ourselves as just providing the infrastructure. I mean, I would love to see our comm satellites in orbit when the Google Lunar Enterprise people operate because, you know, we, we'd let them use them. Here, that way you guys don't have to go all the way home. You can bounce off of our satellites because that's, that's a big deal, having to drive a signal all the way home. Not have to do that would save a lot of mass. One of the one of the one of the one of the last questions I had was um, we kind of really touched on it a little bit in, in the beginning here. Um, it, 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 you said that uh, we were discussing a little bit about uh, about NASA and and perhaps they've kind of sort of lost their way a little bit. Um, why do you think is that? And why do you think that is? Is it something you know? Have have we as a as a people you know be, sort of become too risk adverse to go ahead and, and put humans into space? Or, or why do you think that this whole about face is going on within within NASA? Um, I first off, I will say that that I have several friends who work in NASA, several very close friends who work in NASA. And they are some of the hardest working, most motivated, driven people I know. But somewhere along the way, and I don't know of a single one of them who won't agree with me on this, although they would never do it on the record. 
I don't know of a single one of them who wouldn't agree that somewhere along the way, NASA stopped being run by scientists and engineers and started being run by bureaucrats. Just their very name scares me. Their goal, you know, when you finally work for NASA, you become a civil servant. What happened to being a rocket scientist? No, I want to go to NASA and I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a rocket scientist. No, they want to go to NASA and be a civil servant. That's when they lost their way. And it isn't NASA's fault. It's Congress's fault. And it's, it's a lot to do with education. The people, you know, the American citizenry don't understand how valuable space and space technologies are. They don't understand just how much the space program has enriched their life. Uh, someone who knows better can check me on this, but I saw something a little bit ago that NASA is the only organization that actually makes money for the federal government. I'm not counting the IRS. They don't make it. They take it. That, and that is like for, for every dollar that was spent in NASA, what is it, $3 or $7 ends up coming back into the economy. And people and don't understand that. And this is a NASA failure. And that they should be preaching that they should be that should be on every broadcast. You know, this mission cost you X amount of dollars, and it brought this much to the economy. They they should be just screaming that from the top of their lungs. They should really bring out how cool what they do is, and how important it is to everybody's everyday life. Uh, I would love at the Canadian Space Summit last year. The idea was brought up of a day without space. And try and live a day without space and space technologies. It means no weather. That means no cell phone. That means you know no internet. There's so many things that you that come things that people don't understand about, like MRIs. You know, that is a space-derived technology. And, and, and it goes beyond the technology too. And actually, I, I got this at the last Mars Society conference I was at. They, they were talking about basically the societal impact of going of going to the moon. The societal impact of going to the moon. It just it created uh, it, was, it was like opening a door to a new world that we can do. Humans can do whatever they want. It became kind of the litmus test for anything else. Well, if we can send people to the moon, we can, you know, do X, Y, or Z. And uh, everything's kind of judged against going to the moon. And now we do stuff that's a, a lot higher technology. There was even some a commercial about that, that um, they, they listed that, and then they listed what they were doing, which was in some intercommunication process that, um, information was going very quickly from one point to another, and I don't remember what the commercial was, but it it made going to the moon look very simple, especially the way we did it. I mean, that was a kind of a really bullheaded approach to going to the moon. It's like, okay, how big a rocket do we need? All right, we just make a rocket that's big enough, and we just build this tin can and put some people in it, and off it goes with some telemetry and guidance. Now, having said that, we're not taking anything away from the monumental engineers who did that work. Those people were engineering gods, but just go ahead. Yes, which at the time was, was, well, we didn't know that that was enough to get there. 
it, it didn't look like it, and and the um, the math to do that was not it was barely there. I will say in, in, in NASA's defense, NASA is simply a um, an arm of of the, you know the executive branch. It gets its marking marching orders from the executive branch and is exactly. is, is is geared to carry, carry out their policy. You know the to carry out the policy of the executive branch. And I, I think too, and, and and this is just me me talking here. Um, that has been, you know, that has been sadly lacking, you know, in, in, in the past, you know, good Lord, past 30 years is you know, we haven't really had a focus in that area since, since John Kennedy. Exactly. So that's the, the and that comes from people not understanding how important space really is. It's not it has not a driving force anymore. So that means Congress doesn't see it as a driving force. That means it isn't the driving force among the presidents. If and NASA is kind of floundering because they're being given all these different various cool things that they have to do. They're not being given enough money to do it with. And so they end up doing a bunch of interesting and, and amazingly cool little things. But now people kind of, they're getting amazing shots from Hubble, but what they want is a warp drive. And they don't understand the, the, the disconnect between those thoughts. And that shows up in Congress and it shows up in the president. It's just the people don't see it as being a driving force anymore. They don't understand how important it is to their lives. If everyone knew just how important space was, they would be screaming at Congress going, why are you spending this much money on a war that nobody wants when we need to be spending this money on space? That's a good um, you know, financial uh, kind of gauge that, um, that I hit a few years back. It was – when did uh, – I guess that was 2000 and – I can't remember the year, but um, we had a speaker come in. Um, they were invited in by the chemistry department, and he was going over Gerald O'Neill's old idea of building a whole mining base on the moon in order to build a 10,000-person space station at the L5 point, which was new to a lot of people, but uh, I was uh, familiar with it from going to college. They said uh, they were estimating the whole thing, going to the moon, establishing this mining colony, actually at, at $30 billion in you know, 1970 dollars, and they thought it was still $30 billion in, uh, I think it was like 2005. Um, actually, it was 2006 or seven, And then a week later, George Bush announced the uh, rebuilding of Iraq at $80 billion before the end of the year. This was like February. It was $30 billion to do the space station over 20 years, and now all of a sudden here the U.S. is spending $80 billion in less than a year. And I knew then that it wasn't about the money, it was about the will to spend the money and the drive to do the project. I have I have one more question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna yield yield that to the rest of the team if anybody else has any any more questions they want to ask. And I will remind you that we do have three partial contest announcements to make. 
Well, but okay, I'll, let's hear your question. Okay, that, that's, basic, that, that's basically what I was going to ask about, 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 about the contests. And uh, um, also, if, if anyone, any member of our audience after hearing this wants to, to get involved in the project, what, what can they do to, to contact you folks? Well, first off, every person who hears this wants to be involved in the project, right? Yes, yes, you do. Of course. <laughs> of course you do. I mean, how many people get to be involved in a real honesty? See, this is the thing. This is a unique opportunity for everybody to be involved in a real space mission. That's once in a lifetime. How often you get that opportunity? But exactly. You, 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 do have an, you do have a couple of contests involved, so go, go ahead. Our form okay. is yours. Okay. Uh, first off, openluna.org. Go there. Sign up. Right, Debbie Lee? Absolutely. If every one of the listeners were to go and sign up, that would do three things. First off, it would give us enough operating capital to make the rest of it happen absolutely. Secondly, it would give us traction like you wouldn't believe with potential donors and investors. And then thirdly, most importantly, that'll be 23,000 people or however many people it is that will be there to help with doing the work of the project because it's not just about paying for it there is still work that needs to be done i mean we need i need people who understand corporate finance like mad i need web developers i need artists i need 3d rendering i need people who can do 3d rendering we need people who are writers technical writers we need uh we need artistic writers one of the things we're doing for for PR or education and public outreach is we're writing a novel about the mission. Obviously, there will be drama that, that we expect will not happen in the real mission, but it will give everyone the story in a story so they'll understand. And then we end it with, this isn't sci-fi. This is happening right now. Come be involved. We need people to help write that. We want to do a screenplay of it. We, we want to do a real movie of it. I mean, imagine that. Remember what I said about Avatar? Well, yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> this, is, this is how we do it, is we make the movie. And then everyone comes and watches the movie. Well, bang, there's our mission. You know, that's – if all these people were to come and be involved, it would happen. This is a you – know, you know, to quote another movie, you know, if you, if you build it, they will come. With us, it's the other way around. If they come, we'll build it. But got to come. Okay. I'm talking to the listeners now. You, come. Yes, no, you. Right there, sitting in your chair. Get up. Go, website. Go. Go. Sign up. That's what we need to happen. Contests. We have... We're calling them three contests. It's really four. Um, we have Open Lunar Rover contests. Rules to be announced. But what it boils down to is this. It's build your Scout class rover. Build the Boomerang class rover. Uh, 225 kilos fitting into the box. It's a 4 by 8 by 3 I think it is, box. And the contest will, you'll have to support so much mass in certain locations. That's the rules that we're working with the science team right now and writing out. We actually, they've given us all their payload requirements, but they'll have to support certain instrumentation. And whoever can fit the most of these little rovers inside this four by eight by three, you know, four foot deep, eight feet high, three foot wide box and 225 kilos 
including the unloading mechanism, wins. Be three, we're currently scheduling three years of competition for all of our contests, all the Open Luna contests, three years of competition. The first ones will be, we hope it, we want it to be a friendly exchange of ideas where everyone comes, they look at the technologies, we test the rules, everyone kind of does their thing, we experiment, we have a contest, everyone has a good time, there'll be barbecue at the end. Second year will be a little more dangerous um, I mean, I mean you know, we're, that's where people will get focused. That's where prize money, real prize money, will be start being involved. This is where some more prestige will be involved. The only way to get into the second year's competition is you have to be invited. The only way to be invited is to either compete in the first year's competition or to hit numbers that are within 10% of the top contestant of the first year's. So one way or another, you'll have to prove to get into the second year. Third year will be held in some amazing analog sites such as Hawaii, and we expect somebody to die. I'm joking. Um, I'm just that's that's where the real competition is going to be. That's that's where that's where it's going to get serious because whoever wins that contest, we will send that hardware to the moon. Wow, that is and, awesome. And, I mean, obviously not the rover that actually competed in the contest because there's some obvious differences, you know, like we, you, know, you might use pneumatic tires on Earth, but obviously it won't work on the moon. Right. But everything, everything that you build that's analog, you have to be able to demonstrate the capability to build in-space qualified materials. You know, like they can build it out of aluminum knowing that titanium exists, for example. If they want to use a particular kind of battery that's just prohibitively expensive for an independent or a college team to build. And this is open, by the way, to everybody, not just university teams. This is open to, you know, if some homeschool group wants to get together and build one, cool, do it. If, you know, your local mate club wants to do it, cool, do it. If, if Raytheon decides they want to build one, fine, let them. But since it'll be, it'll be numbers, we expect the playing field's going to be level because it's about innovation, not about spending a bunch of money on hardware. And that's why we expect that a homeschool team could compete against Carnegie Mellon. Um, in any case, that's one contest is the Scout Class Rover, which is 225 kilos, X-size box. How many rovers can you fit inside that can, including the ejection mechanism? Whoever has the most and hits all the the uh, science team's requirements wins. Um, the other one is the the boomerang class, which is a rover. Again, the science team has a certain number of requirements that you have to hit, and this one includes some digging capabilities. The uh, scout class rovers we're not expecting to survive the lunar night, but if they do, that's bonus points. The boomerang class rovers we expect to be able to survive the night which in the South Pole is a long time. It's not 15 days. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, depending on where you go, it's, it, it can be as little as two months. It can be forever. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you make a mistake, it can be forever. But it, we, we, we want it to be able to survive the night. And now we're talking heavier-duty rovers, though. 225 kilos worth of rover and sample return container the trick is, is you have to be able to provide segregated 
samples to where you reach out, you grab a sample, you put it in a sub-container of some sort, I'm not going to say bag or box or whatever, and that sample has to come back uncontaminated. That's a big deal because, as we all know, every single Apollo sample came back contaminated. You can't blame them. They didn't know. Now we know better. These things have to come back uncontaminated. Whoever can get the most samples in that container, you know, most kiloage of, container, of, of samples in 225 kilos, wins. There is, by the way, another contest buried in that that we're, we're just we aren't really announcing it as a contest. We're just stating it as part of our intention is we will hold contests, and when we start bringing back samples, we will give away, give away one sample per age group per continent. So some kindergarten or some primary school kid per continent, which I guess means six, because I don't think there's any in Antarctica, will get a piece of the moon. Here you go. You won the contest. Congratulations. Wow. Same thing with, same thing with secondary schools, university. We might, we might stop it at university level. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how you build public relations. And if they want to go ahead and get involved in this contest, they just go to the, go to the site and, and sign up? or Right. Well, we're right now they can go to the site, sign up, announce intention. We're still finalizing the rules. Mm-hmm. We're, within, we're within two weeks of finalizing the rules. The rules will, the final contest will probably be announced at the, uh, I think it's the International Studies Conference, which will, I don't know when this program is going to air, but it's two weeks from when it's being recorded. But in, in, uh, so that's when we'll probably, that's when we'll announce it with rules. Um, and there'll be preliminary rules, the rule where we're going to, we're putting the rules out. The rules are even open source. We're going to throw out what we think the rules ought to be. And I will say right now that we're stealing them heavily from the University Rover Challenge because those guys have been doing it for a number of years and they're really good at it. And they've got a good team going on. They've got a good group that's putting it together. Sloan, he, he, he's doing a good job running a good contest. We'll steal heavily from their rules. But the, even our rules are going to go open source. And then people can say, no, 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 this is a dumb idea. We want to do it this way. And if the majority of the teams agree, then fine, we'll tweak the rules that way. But the end result is, though, is we want a rover that we can send to the moon. And then along with that comes, you know, whichever whichever team we send to the moon will also be a bunch of contracts go with it. Like uh, that, there will actually be no prize money for the third team, the, the grand grand prize winner. There won't be any prize money at all with it because they will get manufacturing contracts to build these things to go to the moon. They'll get manufacturing contracts to build Earth-based versions of them to sell here on Earth so people can train with them because that's also part of open source. All of our training is available to the public, including uh, if you want to be a, a lander pilot, build, you, can, you can build the simulator and, and fly your own lander. Um, but the they'll have toy rover contracts where they can you know we will license their rover and have some toy company build rover so that kids can drive it around and that'll be part of the the winning contract um, okay i'll uh, pause on that for a second and then go to the other contest okay <laughs> go ahead if you can okay. if you could tell what the, what the what the final contest is i'd appreciate it well the the uh well that's two of one contest that's the rover okay. contest the um 
Moon Society and we're working with the Open Luna is working with the Moon Society on this is they're working on a contest similar to our rover contest only they're adding the added cuteness of lava tube exploration which means you'll need some kind of a crane to set your rover down in a lava tube and they and the way they described it to me is it has to be recoverable so that means you you have to have some way of getting that rover back out and taking it to another lava tube. Again, they're going to announce their rules at the same SEDS conference. And then the last contest is working with Moon Society and SEDS India is Microsat communications satellite using solar sails for propulsion. Because that's always been part of our plan is to use solar sails to maintain our communication satellites around orbit of the moon, which, as you may or may not know, is a really difficult thing to do. Rather than expending fuel, we're going to use solar sails to keep them in orbit. And it'll be a contest as far as making that happen. Uh, I understand, um, was it National Space Society? Is, has a solar sail microsatellite. I think that's a planetary society. Planetary society. Yeah. Planetary society has a solar sail microsat they're working on right now. But we're doing, we're setting that as a, as a contest, and we're we will probably provide launch. You know, it's like there'll be a deadline. You have to have all of your satellites in by this time, and then we'll we'll probably provide the launch, and then and then we see who does the job best, and then whoever wins, that'll be the satellite that we deploy. Wow, some really really exciting stuff to get involved in. Involved in, honestly. Um, this is everybody being involved in the mission. These are some examples of how you can get involved in the mission. Uh, Mark Sawyer, if there are no more questions. I'm good. I'm taking it all in. Okay. And just registered on the site. Oh, cool. Thank you. That's my I'm next Sawyer? step, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I'm, soon as we're, soon as this is done, I'm there, too, so. So. Thank you. Uh, debt, uh, Paul G. Williams and uh, Deb- Debbie Lee Wilkinson, thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. We really do appreciate it. This is some exciting stuff, and I hope our uh, our, uh, our, uh, view- our our listeners understand that too. Great, this is great stuff. Well, th- thank you. This is you know we need our. This is why this is such an aggressive timetable. Is we need everyone to be excited, and we need you to come out now and go sign up. If you know about wiki gardening, get a hold of me or Debbie Lee right away. We need, <laughs> we need to clean up the wiki. It. it it's uh, we lost our last wiki gardener. He got deployed overseas, and we need to get somebody to replace him. And we need someone to clean that up right now because it looks that wiki is not a good representation of the work that we've got going on. Okay. And artists and PR people and somebody who understands corporate finance, someone who feels comfortable walking into Company X saying, "I'd like a hundred million dollars, please." We need those kinds of people, and we need them badly. We need them right now because that is the biggest part of the mission is paying for it, and the only way to pay for it is to get people involved, to get people excited. If if I had 20,000 people sign up tomorrow, then I take that to the investors. I take that to the corporations and say, look, we've got these kinds of people behind us. Tell me you don't want them saying, look, you know, here's the tool that took us back to the moon. That's the kinds of things that the people who make these decisions look for. Um, Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for having us.